I'm looking tonight at uh, the passage, uh, Red Phil and the Ethiopian. I don't know you as a congregation. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this passage and how many are not. But let's run and let's see. Now, how the gospel came to the United Kingdom is really a fascinating story. And if you ask, you know, seven people, you'll get seven different answers. Probably there's an element of truth in them all. I think the gospel came to the UK, came to very, very early. Um, probably some artisans or Roman soldiers who were Christians came and spoke the gospel right there in perhaps the first century or soon after. And England, the, the United Kingdom, was just a land of absolute paganism uh, at that time. Uh, England's very first church historian, the Venerable Bede, um, he records that a, a, one, one of the English kings, a king called Lucius, uh, asked the Pope if he would send someone over to give religious uh, instruction in the Christian faith. That could have been the beginning, I, I don't know, uh, I doubt it. Then, of course, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the very first one, uh, Augustine set up shop in Canterbury 597. So take your pick. But the gospel had to come to England sometime. There's another tradition, of course, that it came through the Celtic Church, through Ireland and through Scotland. That's uh, a history that I probably prefer for various reasons. So the gospel came somewhere. Now, what we have here in this passage is how the gospel came to Africa. Africa now, along with South America, the strongest parts of the church, the global south, and indeed they reckon over 631 million Christians in the continent of Africa, more Presbyterians in Malawi than there are in Scotland, and more Anglicans in Uganda than there are in England, and probably better Presbyterians and better Anglicans than they have in the home country. So it all started, that great gospel movement in the continent of Africa started with one conversation in a chariot. Before we look at the passage, I just want to notice two things by way of introduction. The first one is that mission is marked by a wide variety. You look at verse 1 there, the, the church starts with a killing. You know, Saul is there, he approved of her killing. Uh, on that great day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. See that in verse 1? Uh, all of them except the apostles were scattered. It's not a great start, is it? Persecution. There's a, an angry guy killing the church. And so often we very often think of problems in the church Folk talk to me about problems in your own situation. There's the problems of a church in central London. There's the growing pressure of traffic and the the green, rightly or wrongly, is pushing everybody out of the centre of the town. It's a no-go area. It's really difficult to get into the centre. The church thrives in difficulty. Difficulties stimulate faith. Difficulties stimulate imagination. And faith uh, shouts and laughs at the impossible and says, 
it shall be done. So there's a wide variety here. It starts off in, in persecution. I look at verse 4 to verse 8. Let's see the contrast. You see there you've got the, the city crowds, don't you there? In verse 5, in verse 6 again, the, the, the crowds are playing close attention. And then you get verse 26. See the contrast goes south to a desert road. See there the variety of mission. Big meetings in cities. Cities, of course, are full of all the beautiful people, all the cosmopolitan intelligentsia. We, we, we know that. And then you've got the, the desert road and people in popular opinion say, well, that's maybe not the place to go. And yet mission here is seen absolutely everywhere. And isn't it interesting? It says there that the, all of them except the apostles, uh, uh, stayed behind in, in, in Jerusalem. And so the folk who went out on mission wasn't the apostles, it was the B team. And yet God, God used them. God, of course, used the apostles. But in an incredible way, he used those who were not the heads of the church. He used what some folk would say, the little people. But, I mean, there was a, a character called Francis Schaeffer, who was big when I was a boy, uh, has got a great essay, is it? No little people, no little places. And so God uses absolutely everywhere. And so in the passage, the soundtrack goes silent from the city sounds to the sound of the wind over sand. And the plurals you have, all the plurals there in verses 4 to verse 8, merge into almost singulars there in verse 26. So from the many, we have one man, Philip, in the chariot. The kingdom values are so different to our values. The things that grow the kingdom are often the things which are counterintuitive. They don't fit in with the big picture. I spend most of my work looking at strategic thinking and missional philosophy the irony is that, what is it someone said? I don't mean a flippancy or disrespect here, but someone says, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Of course, there's a, a metaphorical element there. God does what he does, and he does it through the most unusual people in unusual places. And so mission is marked by wide variety. There's no one time, there's no one place, there's no one method. God does what God does. But again, the subject of mission is always God. I love how the Acts of the Apostles begin. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 1 is the second volume of Luke, of course. I wrote all about that Jesus began to do and teach. The gospel and mission, the source and subject is always Jesus. Did Philip in verse 5 proclaim a health, wealth and prosperity message? Absolutely not. Did he proclaim a lifestyle message? Absolutely not. Yeah, he proclaimed a message that led to lifestyle change, but he proclaimed Jesus. The message of the apostles, the message of the B team is Jesus. 
Jesus is the subject of the Bible. When we read the Bible, we don't look at the Bible to find us in there. We see the great line from Genesis to Revelation, and it's all about Jesus. He is the hero. He is the subject. He is the one of whom we speak. And that's liberating, isn't it? Because folk can talk about hypocrisy in the church, and we can say, absolutely, but our hero is Jesus. Now, that sounds great. Just, by the way, a little sidebar. If you're talking to someone, you know, about your faith, uh, a really big thing that's happening now is reading the Bible with people. You know, say to someone, look, well, you read John chapter 4 and I'll read John chapter 4. We'll meet in Costas and Starbucks and we'll talk about it. That means you're switching the agenda from you and your story to Jesus and his story. Four things then, very, very briefly about this passage. Four things that I just want us to to note this evening. Uh, I'm looking at verse 26 onwards, and the first thing I'm noting here is the mission the mission field. The mission field is is significant, isn't it? Because um, the mission field here is just one individual. Verse 27. On his way, he met an Ethiopian. Eunuch. So it strikes out. He's sticks out. He's, he's Ethiopian. He's African. Different color, different dress, different language, different accent. Probably uh, the the way he he would speak here, and, and that reveals the nature of the kingdom growth. I don't need to tell a congregation like you that uh, Acts one eight. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and unto the the uttermost parts of the earth. And in, in your own congregation, look in London, which is multicultural. You're seeing there a great canvas for the gospel. You're seeing in, in your own congregation an embodiment of the gospel as every culture's people maintaining their own culture, maintaining their own language, maintaining their own sense of national identity. And yet there is a bigger identity here, the identity of being in Christ. This is a faith that knows no limits. There are no limits here. Yes, it began in Jerusalem, the very epitome of Jewishness, but it spread to the uttermost parts of the earth. There are no limits. There are no barriers to kingdom growth. And so very often we we see Africa as someone that was late to the party, and yet, let's remember our church history, Clement, Oregon, Athanasius, Tertullian, uh, Cyprian, Augustine, all these people were Africans. Uh, they didn't come late to the party. We came late to the party in historical terms, and here God is moving. So we notice he, he's an African, the cosmopolitan nature of the kingdom. That really gets us going. And then we notice he's a eunuch. Now, um, that's a fascinating story in itself. I, I don't know if you if you listen to podcasts. Uh, Melvin Bragg has got a great podcast on eunuchs, <laughs> believe it or not. Uh, if you want to find out more, the the last kind of Chinese dynastic eunuch just died about twenty years ago. That's a little bit of irrelevant historical knowledge thrown in for nothing. Uh, it's really a 
fascinating subject, you know, the, the rise of, of the eunuchs and, and how they, they were used. And they often, uh, if you listen to the podcast, they ended up in very high positions for various reasons that, that we wouldn't go into at the moment. But a key verse in Bible terms is Deuteronomy 23.1, which I'll paraphrase it to you. Eunuchs are not allowed in. Okay. Uh, under the old covenant, eunuchs were excluded from the assembly. They just didn't meet the bar requirements. They, they were odd. They were strange. And so they were, they were put out. Uh, and under the new covenant, however, all that stuff is gone. Jesus had a broken body and it was broken for, for, for the eunuchs, like, like everyone else. And so, he was a seeker, he was African, he was a eunuch, but he was a seeker after God. Verse 27, he'd gone to Jerusalem to worship. Now, I don't think he got the whole picture, but he'd gone to worship. Up in Edinburgh just now, there's, there's a big movement, I don't know if it's hit England, it's called Try Praying, and you see it in the side of buses, Try Praying. Now, I guess from a theological point of view, try praying falls really far short of gospel. You could say it was born out of superstition. You could say it was born out of fear. You know, if life is going south, try praying. Wouldn't do any harm. We we think the gospel is a bit more than, than that. However, like the Ethiopian eunuch, there are lots of folk who are asking questions and they're not yet there. I mean, he'd gone to Jerusalem, he'd gone to worship, he had some idea of a Jewish notion of God, but he, he had no relationship uh, with, with with God. Spirituality is big. We're not becoming more secular as, as a culture. We're becoming more spiritual. Uh, now, that's not to say godly or even biblical, where probably going further away from that but in terms of talking to people you can talk to your friends quite easily about mindfulness you can talk about life after death you can talk about so many things here so we see the mission field he was african he was a eunuch and he was spiritually interesting God is encouraging us then to go for diversity. God is encouraging us to not let brokenness stand in the way. God is encouraging us to see that people who are seeking after God are not necessarily heretics, but seekers after truth. Don't judge people easily. I love the story of... um, there's an old Welsh preacher back in the day called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones and he was in a railway carriage and this drunk man offered Lloyd-Jones a drink. Now, Lloyd-Jones was a former Harley Street physician. He was quite posh. He was very well-dressed. He was quite a formal man. So this drunk offers him a drink from a bottle and Lloyd-Jones graciously refuses. And then the man realises... He's a minister and says, you must think, I'm really cheeky. And Lloyd-Jones says, no, no, I think you're very generous. So the eunuch didn't have all his theological ducks in a row, but he was he was in the, in, in the right direction. Okay, So that's the, the mission field, which I think is quite, quite interesting. The second thing we notice here is the missionary. 
The missionary, verse 26, of course, is Philip. Now, what interests me here is that evangelism wasn't really Philip's thing. <coughs> you know, Acts uh, chapter uh, 6, he, he, he was a deacon. Uh, he was an admin guy. He was a systems guy. You know, Philip wasn't really your edgy evangelism type. He was more into his, his spreadsheets and, and, and getting things organized. The irony here is that God, you know, puts him up with another organizer. The, the Ethiopian eunuch was, was a money guy also. He was a chancellor of uh, Queen <coughs> Candace. The point I want to make there is that mission and evangelism is for every single one of us. There are, I don't know, 39 people in the screen. There's more folk in the room, over 40 people here tonight. Every single one of us are called to talk about Jesus. Um, mission isn't just for the train spotters of the church. Apologies to any of you who may be train spotters. It's a perfectly noble pastime. Um, but train spotters have got a reputation of being somewhat bizarre and alternative. Maybe those of you who are train spotters would say, absolutely, I'll own that. Uh, it's a minority interest. Mission is not a minority interest. Philip was a deacon, <coughs> and yet he did it. He had this evangelistic passion. You don't need a call to witness. The call is already there. Philip was a man who obeyed God and he was ready to go. Folks, that's you tonight. People who obey God, they're ready to go and who know enough about the Bible to explain Jesus. We've seen the mission field. We've seen the missionary. Thirdly, let's have a look here at the methodology. What did he do? What I find interesting here is that there's lots of questions. Lots of questions here. Philip asks one. So so this Ethiopian, he's sitting in his chariot. He's probably pulled into the lay-by. There's a crowd with him. There's there's a retinue with him. But he's sitting in, in the lay-by in his chariot. Uh, I don't know, his, his iPhone opener or, or, or whatever. No, no, he's just, he's bought a scroll uh, at, at Jerusalem at the, at the conference and he's reading Isaiah. And Philip asks a question, do you understand what you're reading? He asks one course question and then the Ethiopian unit asks three questions back. Questions are really interesting, aren't they? Aren't they? Someone's questions are more revealing than someone's answers. Because we begin to establish how people think. Not that we know how they think, but what do they really think? And that's a lesson I've learned in, in, in my late 50s. I wish I'd learned it in my 20s. To find out more about people before I speak, to ask questions what they really think. I'd always assumed you know, that Roman Catholics believed that the Pope was the head of the church and that the Mass was really the body of Christ and uh, you could confess your sins to a priest and they would be forgiven. 
I used to think that that's what Catholics really think. Well, theologically, that's what they do think. That's their confessional position. But if I'm talking to Teresa down the street and I'm asking her questions, that's not what she thinks. She's questioning the faith that she was brought up. If I meet Muhammad, you know, my, my, my next door neighbor, Muhammad's moved to Edinburgh from London recently. He's, he's, he's a CA. He, he lives near me. He's, he's a Muslim. I ask him. I discover that he's a secular Muslim. Um, he doesn't really believe that the Quran was revealed supernaturally to Muhammad in one go. He doesn't really believe in jihad. They, how did I find these things out? By asking questions and just finding out what they understood about Christianity. Muhammad thinks that the word Christian is just a synonym for the Western world. He, he, he thinks Jesus was one of the prophets, but he knows nothing about Jesus. As a methodology here, before you speak, you think. Not what we think they think. Finding out the level of interest. The level of interest is, is, is high here. Do you understand what you're reading now? This was an evangelistic easy ball. Uh, I don't play cricket. It's a crazy game, but uh, if you ask me, but, but, you know, throwing, the, the, some, some balls are really difficult. I think there's a spin on them, and if you're Australian, you put, Australian, you put a bit of sandpaper on to affect the, the spin. So, some are curved balls, and they're difficult. This was a pretty easy evangelistic setup. The guy's reading the Bible. So, he, the methodology was, you, you ask questions, and, and, and the second thing is, and this is somewhat counterintuitive, yes, you can tell your own story, but more effective is as quick as possible get to the story of the Bible. He here is easy because the guy's reading the Bible. He's reading Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, and uh of course it's, it's all about Jesus. Again, that's one principle. If if you do talk, try to get someone on to the Bible, the text of the Bible, not what they think about Jesus, but what Jesus actually said evangelism is telling people who are not Christians what the Bible teaches about Jesus look that's the one line definition of evangelism evangelism is telling people who are not Christians what the Bible says about Jesus now much of this passage is special of course but um Philip is just pointing out here that Jesus is the subject of the Bible. It's very similar to the Emmaus Road journey, isn't it? When when Jesus uh, opened up the scriptures, uh, beginning with Moses and the prophets, explaining how the scriptures spoke of him. Philip's doing exactly the the same here. Um, the emphasis is, is on what Jesus, especially with the sacrifice of Jesus. There's an honesty here. He goes straight into the meat of the passage. He goes straight into what theologians call substitutionary atonement. Verse 32 is led to a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before a shears is silent. 
why are evangelical churches growing the most in England and Scotland? Because they tackle the tough questions. Because they talk about interesting things. Oh, global warming, warming is, is interesting. Social justice is, is interesting. But, you know, I, I can go to the Green Party. I can go to the Labour Party. And I suppose on a good day, go to the Conservative Party. And, and they'll come up w- with these policies. It's not distinctive, you know, when the church talks about these things. But nobody else will talk about the beauty of Jesus. Nobody else will talk about the reality of heaven. Nobody else will talk about the reality of hell. Nobody else will talk about God's wrath being satisfied on the cross when Jesus bore the wrath of God. Now that's an interesting dinner table discussion. And people find that quite challenging. That's what Philip does in his methodology. He goes right to Jesus. You go right to the honest things here. What's the result of mission? The What happened here? What was the result? Well, uh, the, the, the eunuch says, who's the prophet talking about? And Philip began saying, it's good news about Jesus. Whereas, he gets it. He just gets it. <clears throat> Verse 36. As they travel along the road, there came some water. And the eunuch says, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? Now, I want to take one phrase there and expand it just a little bit. Because it's important. When the eunuch says, what can stand in the way of me being baptized? Here is a guy... For the whole of his life, the fact that he was a eunuch stood in the way. It stood in the way of being part of the Jewish assembly. It stood in the way of him being married. It stood in the way of being a normal member of the society. It stood in the way of a certain career trajectory. Everywhere he went, something stood in the way. And now finally, I, I, I wish... I don't know the, with audio here, what was the tone of the voice? Was it kind of, ah, oh, this is brilliant, but what can stand, oh, what can stand in the way now? And Philip basically says, nothing. We're going to do it. And the result of mission was public proclamation of baptism. I I don't know what happened. Depending on your your your, your position in baptism, uh, if, if if you're a Presbyterian, they knelt beside the water and they, and they poured the water on. If you're a Baptist, they both went in and went down. That that's irrelevant. But the point is that he was not a believer before, and he he symbolises his faith by this public profession of faith by baptism. I don't know you. Have some of you recently become a Christian? Have some of you got to make that next step? And if you've not been baptized before, you, you've got to be baptized. You, you've got to make a public profession. You've got to tell people that this thing has happened. What hinders me? <coughs> Isn't it interesting that, you know, they were studying Isaiah 53. I wonder, did Philip take him or was he tempted to take him on to Isaiah 56 because Isaiah 56 verse 3 says this 
uh, says this, which has just escaped from my iPad here. Uh, I've found it again. Isaiah 56, verse 3. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch say, I am only a dry tree. Just a few verses on, no barriers, no condemnation, no hoops. Religion is a mindset of hoops and works. Christianity is a mindset of grace. Religion says, what must I do? Christianity says, what has been done? So there's this public profession of faith. That was the first result of mission, public pro- uh, proclamation. The second result of mission was palpable joy. The eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. Poo! The preacher disappears. He's just gone away. <clears throat> and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. The singer didn't matter. This wasn't a celebrity cult. Who Philip was 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 irrelevant. He was taken away. But the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Are you rejoicing this evening? Do you often, whenever you come away from church, you weeping and dancing and praising God, walking around the Barbican just thinking, wow, God is good. Where this quote was George Whitfield, he says, I was delivered from the burden that so heavily suppressed me. The spirit of mourning was taken from me and I knew what it was to rejoice in God my Saviour. Psalm 16:11. You have made known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures evermore. Let me conclude here, encouragement for us that God's in it, an encouragement for us to witness, to realise it's God who does it, and the sheer joy that comes. What is it the psalmist says? When Zion's bondage God restored, as men that dreamed were we, we sow in tears, but we rejoice with laughter, reaping. Father, we bow in your presence. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for that passage. May we be encouraged by the Jesus who is spoken of in it. Bless us now. Amen.